This episode of Ministry Monday is sponsored by the NPM National Convention. NPM's 44th annual National Convention will take place in New Orleans, Louisiana this summer from July 27th to 30th. With both virtual and in-person attendee options, this year's convention provides options for your level of safety and comfort in the midst of COVID-19. Join us for a week of prayer, connection, learning, and fun. For more information and how to register, visit npm.org. From NPM, the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, this is Episode 160 of Ministry Monday. Ministry Monday is a weekly podcast about music, ministry, and liturgy, produced by the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, or NPM. What is NPM? NPM is a national association that fosters the art of musical liturgy. The members of NPM serve the Catholic Church in the United States as musicians, clergy, liturgists, and other leaders of prayer. For more information, go to npm.org forward slash join. Have a question? Email us anytime at ministrymonday at npm.org. Hello and welcome to Ministry Monday. I am your host, Amanda Bruce. If you are new to the podcast, hello, we are so glad that you are tuning in with us. Each week, Ministry Monday offers a podcast episode for the church music minister on topics that seek to help you learn, grow, challenge, and inspire. If you haven't done so already, I encourage you to please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts each week. And hey, thanks for joining us. This time last year, our nation was reeling and grieving over the deaths of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and many others who were killed in situations that simply did not justify such violence against the black community. I spoke with Father Joseph Brown this time last summer, and he challenged us as listeners to keep listening and learning on our journey to work to end racism in all its private and systemic dimensions. And so today, we feature a replay from the 2020 National Convention in our Black Lives Matter series. Today's replay was one of four sessions at last year's convention addressing the sin of racism head-on. While this episode is late to celebrating the social progress we've made in light of Juneteenth being an official federal holiday, we hope that it reminds us of the work we still have to do in our society— to treat each other with kindness, true acceptance, and equality. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the first of our Black Lives Matter uh, webinars that we'll be having all through this week. So glad to be a part of NPM. I'm Dr. Kim Harris, and I am Assistant Professor of African American Thought and Practice at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. But right now I am sheltering in place with my mother in Philadelphia, where I grew up. Very glad to be here. Now you'll see some, uh, you know, uh, 
in their boxes, we have Valerie Lee Jeter, who is an NPM board member, and Lene Gray, who has been part of our task force, and M. Roger Holland, also part of our task force. Today, for tonight's session, the first of the ones that we have all week, we have Donna Grimes, who is the assistant director of African American Affairs. Is that right. correct? Mm -hmm. That's right. For the USCCB, United States Conference yes. of Catholic Bishops. Thank you. <laughs> you did say it gets hard to say at some point. Yeah. We also have Father Stephen Bell. Uh, hopefully he'll be able to come, come on back in. He's, he's coming from Oakland, California. Uh, so I'll introduce him more when he comes back because I know he's having a, a few technical difficulties across, across the many miles. So we're thinking about the pandemic of racism before the pandemic. And just to think about some of the ways that African-Americans have felt about racism, we're going to go back a few years to some words that perhaps some of you heard over these past few days, because on July the 5th, 1852, at an Independence Day celebration in Rochester, New York, Frederick Douglass, who had been enslaved, who escaped from slavery and went on to be one of the nation's greatest abolitionists and certainly one of the nation's greatest orators. He was asked to speak on Independence or on July 5th, so the day after Independence Day, but it was an Independence Day celebration. This is a little bit of what he said. Fellow citizens, pardon me and allow me to ask why I am called upon to speak here today. What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and natural justice embodied in that declaration of independence extended to us? Frederick Douglass goes on to say, Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions whose chains, heavy and grievous yesterday and are today, rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. If I do forget, if I do not faithfully remember those bleeding children of sorrow this day, may my right hand forget her cunning and my mouth and my tongue cleave to the roof of their mouth. To forget them, to pass lightly over their wrongs, and to chime in with the popular theme would be treason most scandalous and shocking and would make me a reproach before God and the world words of Frederick Douglass. And I wonder what Frederick Douglass and so many of our African-American forebears and ancestors would say today in this time of pandemic and yet knowing that before the pandemic of COVID-19, we were experiencing and had been since before the time of Frederick Douglass, been experiencing the pandemic of racism. So today for our Black Lives Matter session, we'll have Donna Grimes. Would you please get us started in thinking about racism and especially in the ways that uh, USCCB, the, the bishops have responded mm -hmm. with 
open wide our hearts. Thank you, Dr. Kim. You know, I think we could have a continuous conversation with Frederick Douglass. We could pick up on where, where, he, left, where he left off and continue the dialogue. He would, uh, he, I mean, he, maybe he would be surprised, but we are still talking about the same problems. We're not enslaved legally, but we do have, we are enslaved in a lot of other ways. And we are dealing with racism uh, all the time, all the time. Uh, in fact, some of us are getting weary <laughs> of, uh, of all the conversation about racism. And yet, this is a, such an important moment for us, a moment in history. Uh, I've been at the conference uh, for 20 years. And I worked with the Catholic Campaign for Human Development for 13 and dealt, dealt with poverty and Catholic social teaching and got real, a real good grounding in the church's teachings uh, on, on social justice. And then came to the, uh, then I came to the Secretariat for Cultural Diversity in the Church, and the work has continued. It's 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 morphed into something a little different. It's more pastoral than it was at one time, but you know, I've been, uh, I've, uh, it, it's been, a, it's been a very good ride, very interesting ride, and I feel very blessed to be in this position, working with the bishops and working with uh, diocesan leaders from around the country, uh, and particularly on issues that I really care about, that I have a a real passion for. And so I thought I would start with just a, a little brief reflection on, on the, uh, the bishop's le pastoral letter against racism, open wide our hearts, the enduring uh, call to love. It was approved almost unanimously by the bishops in uh, November of 2018. And that in itself is a, is a, a feat. Um, it, it's not a perfect document, but uh, working with the bishops and working at the conference, I have a, sen I have a, a sense of how things go. My expectations were not as it's not as high, uh, lofty as people in the field. They wanted this to be a penultimate statement to talk about racism, to really deal with it, break it open, and give us a plan going forward. This statement is not that, but it's not very long. It's about 25 pages. Uh, it's written, um, there, there's scripture there, and it's written in a pastoral tone. And just to, rem just to keep in, bear in mind that the bishops wrote this um, to be pastoral, not to be sociological. They didn't want to take, they didn't want to be political. They, they rec recognized that uh, bad things were happening in the country and that, that racism was raising its ugly head uh, in, a, in a more uh, overt way these days. So for them, uh, what precipitated the letter, and it, it took several years to get going, but what really precipitated the letter was the violence, the, the marching in, in Charlottesville in the summer of 2017. It was urgent. And I mean, I came back to uh, the office after, um, after the weekend and I mean, it was just a buzz from our, in terms of our, our management staff, you know, on the, uh, the exec, at the executive level. They were so concerned. We've got to do something. We've got to do something. The bishops want to do something. The president of the conference, what can we do? And so they decided, we, you know, this letter we've been talking about, it's time to write this letter again. But I want to highlight that the bishops have spoken about racism, of course. They've spoken about it in the past, in the 50s, in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, maybe about every 10 years or so. And it's been 40 years since uh, Brothers and Sisters to Us, which was the last statement on specifically on racism uh, from the whole body of bishops. Individual bishops have made their own statements, you know, and sometimes regional bishops will get together and make a statement. But this, they, this Charlottesville thing freaked them out, if you don't mind my uh, expression, my vernacular there they felt they had to really do something. This was urgent. And as I reflected on this, I'm like, mm, mm, mm. this has been urgent for us. It's been urgent for years. We wanted the bishops to speak up when Trayvon Martin was killed. We wanted the bishops to speak up, you know, so more and more. There's so, there's so many cases of uh, 
African-American young uh, men, women, and children being killed uh, and, and the, the narrative, you know, we feared for our lives and all. And we just wondered, what are the bishops going to say? Well, they came out with, that, with, this, with this statement. And although this statement, uh, I'm not going to go into the criticisms of the statement. There are a couple of things I'd like to say about, about that aspect. One is that the statement is not very clear about who's apologizing for what. You know, the, they, they say, well, the church has, you know, members of the church have, have responsibility. And that, that's the language they have to use. They can't say, the Catholic, they won't say, the Catholic church is a racist institution. You know, for one thing, the church, Christ is the church, and that's where they, that's where they stay. You know, the Christ is the church, and Christ has done no wrong. But the members of the church and, and structures of the church have and continue to create a great deal of harm. And so they did hint at that. They, they mentioned that and said, we, we, we need to make amends. But you know what I'm saying? It's, it wasn't really as clear as people would like to hear that. The other thing, though, is that um, the, uh, their statement doesn't lay out a plan of action, but it does overcome some of the problems that earlier statements, such, such as brothers and sisters to us, lay out. You know, it, it does address those by at least giving attention to the pastoral letter, not letting it be sidelined by other statements on the other many issues that they're concerned about, immigration and pro-life. They let this, they allowed this statement to stand on their own, on its own. They created an ad hoc committee against racism, which is a, which was a big commitment too, because they don't add committees all the time. But this issue was so important to them that they did that. And so one thing that I see in the letter, and I, I mean, sometimes we have to dig, and I've been involved with the process, the writing process and the editing and all that kind of stuff. So I know you have to dig deeply, but, there are things in there that say, hold us accountable. In a way, you know, look at, read the challenges that are in the pastoral letter. And I invite you all to read it again. We must do this. This message is for all of us. It's not for any of us to think that this message is not for us. And we need to, uh, we need to work on this problem. We need to, uh, to do what we can to work on this problem in all of all areas that we have. We have many ministerial situations where we can address the issue of racism with our priests, with our, uh, with our seminarians, in our Catholic schools, our Catholic organizations. Our, you know, we, we have lots of opportunities. And uh, that's the hope that I see in this pastoral letter is that the bishops have, by approving it and getting it out there and supporting it with resources and uh, traveling around, having folks travel around the country to conduct listening sessions with parishioners in a diocese, to bring together groups to, uh, to, uh, to uh, do workshops and uh, reading and, and study together. These are opportunities for us to continue to focus on racism, to keep, to not change the channel as we're so, uh, as happens so often, not just to stay on this channel and deal with the issues as painful as they may be. Uh, we're learning a lot. The bishops are learning a lot. Uh, pastors are learning a lot. And, um, and on top of that, the fight is on. Uh, from the naysayers, you know, so that I'm, I'm seeing a real rise in uh, objections to uh, the pastoral letter, or if not the bishop's statement itself, to the attention that's being laid, paid to to racism. So urgency, I want to stress that. I wanted I wanted to bring out some of the values of the uh, of the pastoral letter itself, um, that it lays groundwork for us to do the planning and the action for pastoral musicians to do their part for uh, catechists to do their part and all ecclesial ministers to do their part. Uh, most people will say they never hear a sermon on racism, against racism in their parish. Doesn't matter what, par what church they go to, they hardly ever hear anything. 
if hardly if ever hear anything against racism and so those are some of the things that we need to we need to kind of really foster that promote that help people to uh to recognize the importance of speak from the pulpit if that's where you have authority speak from there if you have ministries in your parish speak from there you know ensure that you're calling forth new leaders recognize the diversity that's in your midst uh recognize the challenges and the history the history in your own diocese as well as the history or your parish as well as the history in the church and so i think i, f I feel very hopeful that the letter is out there uh it it, it addresses some really important things uh, that we need to address and gives people resources. And when you work with, when I, when you, anybody who works with parishes and dioceses know, they're going to ask, well, give me a template. Uh, I, do you have a prayer service? I get those kind of calls all the time. And maybe you do too, you know, do you have a prayer service for this? Or do you have a, uh, um, you know, do you have resources for, for that? We want to talk about racism, but we don't know how to get started. And so the conference has uh, our office, of course, the, the Secretary for Cultural Diversity, in the church has developed resources, and uh, the, our uh, our policy arm too, the the um, uh, Office of Justice, Peace, and Human Development, office I came from, where CCHD is housed, where uh, domestic policy and international policy, uh, um, you know, is is uh, articulated, and where educational resources are developed for Catholic schools, for uh, homily hints. For for, uh, for priests uh, and, and, and bulletin inserts and, and many other things like that. So lesson plans. Uh, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of support there and there's more coming all the time. So I wanna show you, um, show you a handout that, you can, that you'll receive. I just pulled together a few of the resources and I, I in, indicated the web pages. Our website is, is being upgraded and boy, does it need it. Uh, it's being upgraded. <laughs> really it's very hard to it's been very hard to navigate but we're, we're going to a new we're moving to a new uh, uh, website and this information is being navigated over there you know migrated over there but um, can you show that can we share the screen and show that uh, handout that you're going to receive it's just a simple straightforward one I wanted to direct you to the page where the resources where racism resources are we have a combating resource page. We have racism itself. We have educational resources. On, and uh, so you can see here. And I just wanted to flag, a, flag three in particular. The first is the pastoral letter itself. It doesn't cost very much. But if you want to, you can see the PDF there. And uh, you can go to the PDF and use it, uh, especially if you, if you need to distribute large amount of copies to, uh, to everyone in your parish for uh, maybe a town hall meeting or something like that. You could use that. There's a very brief study guide that was also developed uh, to, um, to accompany the pastoral letter. And so that gives some ideas of questions that could be raised. And, and we're learning, the bishops are learning all along, all, as, we go for, as they go forward with these uh, listening sessions that have been happening now in dioceses around the country. And they only happen where the bishop is, is willing to have them happen. So uh, as much as, but that doesn't mean that you, you in your own parish or your own uh, school, or organization that you can't use these materials yourself. But if you want that broader reach throughout the whole diocese, uh, the, it, it, we, we rely on the bishops to say, bring this to my diocese because I'm, we wanna take these steps, some concrete steps uh, to addressing racism. And the last of the three that I really wanna flag uh, is the action steps for eradicating racism. It's really an invitation for uh, bishops and priests to help them to uh, 
raise the issue of racism, you know, raise it in their uh, ministerial settings. And it, it also, but, it, but not just pastors and, and uh, it's not just for pastors and, and the bishops themselves, because there are some of those steps include uh, catechists, uh, you know, how do you get, getting catechists involved as they're trying to pass on the faith, how do they in, include racism and fighting racism in their, in their curricula? Uh, their ideas such as uh, why not meet with the chiefs of police in your area? You know, bring the pastoral council together with the chiefs of police in the area and have a dialogue, especially if, uh, if your area has experienced um, one of these tremendous, terrible, you know, horrible uh, killings, you know, open the dialogue with them. So there, there are quite a few things and they're, they're practical. We think they're practical. Um, and I think you will as well. Of course, there are prayers there, parish resources, lesson plans or lesson starters, lots of things. And so I ask you to invite you to browse around on those three pages and uh, specifically to look at those three resources. Um, the last thing I wanna say is just in closing that this, we, uh, this is the new civil rights movement. It really is. Now, I suspect because we're all in ministry that most of us were alive uh, during the first, during the last one. But even if you were really little, uh, you know, that was different. That was a, there was a different dynamic there. That was, and we're building on the shoulders of those who came before us always. Uh, and the, uh, the 60s and the 70s or 50s, 60s and 70s, you know, there was a civil rights movement before that. There was legislation, there was, there was reconstruction, but you know, we're at a point now where there's an eagerness, I sense it because I talk to people all the time from all parts of the country. There's an eagerness to start looking at racism. You know, people are accepting uh, the idea that white supremacy exists and that white privilege is a thing, you know, and that we have to work together in, uh, we're working together in multicultural settings and there are things we know and things we don't know you know, because of our own backgrounds. But I see an eagerness and a desire. And I think, and what I'm, I want to just say in closing my, my piece is that we have to keep the momentum going. We can't buckle under the pressure. Uh, I was asked recently to take down an essay that a young adult wrote. Uh, at my request, she had attended the uh, Black Lives Matter Symposium at Xavier University just uh, about two, two years ago. And so I was asked, I asked her, well, what was your, you know, what was your impression? And she wrote a lovely, uh, a lovely piece for the website and for the subcommittee. And in the time it's been posted, not a problem, no problems. Last week, I get calls. You need to take it down because she's supporting Black Lives Matter. Well, that's the name of the symposium, first of all. And they were basically making the argument that uh, this, uh, the agenda is a Marxist agenda. It's anti-Catholic. Uh, and I ha all I can say is no, it's, it's, it's based on Catholic social teaching. It's based on the, the example of Jesus, you know, who always spoke for the disenfranchised, the vulnerable, the outcast. Jesus would be right there, you know, with the protesters. And, the, and why are you uh, laying on the protesters things that don't belong there? They are, and so, but what we are, what we will continue to do we're putting a new uh, reflection up. We're not taking hers down. We're putting a new reflection up that says we, yes, the bishops support the movement for black lives. If you can't handle Black Lives Matter, it's the movement for black lives. And that seems for whatever reason to be more palatable for people, but it is a movement and it's not going anywhere, if we don't, especially if we, uh, if we don't get scared 
and retreat and say, oh, we got complaints from donors or, you know, uh, from Catholic organizations with a lot of clout. Even some of our most conservative allies in the pro-life movement, uh, I'll mention Gloria Purvis, who has a show, who had a show, Morning Glory, on EWTN. And because she said that Black Lives Matter and watching George Floyd was like watching an abortion and you can't stop it, they yanked her off, okay? And Bishop supported her and all, but uh, that's the environment that we're in. But this too shall pass. And so I say, let's keep the momentum going. Let's be smart about it and keep the momentum going and speak the truth. Just speak the truth. Thank you. Thank you so much, Donna. Thank you. So, it's amazing. You know, no matter how much you hear and read and everything, there's always more to learn. So I appreciate that in, in your 10 minutes. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And so the resources that, uh, that Donna was telling us about, uh, when you go back and, and look at this breakout session and you can, you can watch it again and all, you will also see there are already some resources listed uh, there, but then uh, these ones that uh, Donna has been telling us about will also be listed there. So thank you so much. So, all right, so stay with us, Donna, please. We're also now going to hear from Father Stephen Bell. And uh, Father Stephen Bell is a priest of the Missionary Society of St. Paul, known as the, also known as the Paulist Fathers. He's originally from Washington, D.C. And he was ordained in the nation's capital June of 2008. Now, some of you will say, well, I know who he is because you remember him as associate director of the Busted Halo uh, Ministries in New York. And he was with them from uh, 2012 to 2014 and engaged in full-time young adult ministry by producing podcasts and videos and articles and features and giving workshops. And these days, uh, Father Stephen is serving as the Associate Director of Newman Hall, Holy Spirit Parish, Catholic Campus Ministry of the University of California, Berkeley. So thank you so much for uh, being here with us, Father Stephen, and we're looking Absolutely. forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Thank you. So first of all, Dr. Kim, thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, thank you, Sister Donna, for that wonderful um, treatise on, on uh, Open Wide Your Heart and how it can be for us a guidepost for looking at some things very in intentionally around this uh, issue, this very wide, very complex issue of racism. Dr. Kim, when you started off, you started off with a, uh, with a quote from Frederick Douglass, and I'd like to continue in kind, just in light of trying to put some things into context as we look at this issue. Um, let me kind of back up a little bit and give my perspective. Um, I, I come to things with an, a curiosity of the intersection of theology, sociology, psychology, physiology, um, and, and philosophy, you know, all the parts of ourselves. how do they intersect to, you know, to form decision-making, relationship fostering, how do we actually engage into something that is very much authentic and how do we really begin to foster our um, self-authentic language and ways in which we are with, with one another and with ourselves. Uh, my work 
overall and in many of my assignments has been around reconciliation. So looking at that relationship that we have with God, looking at relationship with us, ourselves, and looking at relationship with others and also with creation. And so kind of taking a step back and, and looking at this from a, uh, from a wider context, Frederick Douglass said in his speech, um, what the 4th of July means to the Negro. He said, the sunlight that shines provides light and healing for some of you, but provides stripes and death for us. And he talks on, he goes on by saying, and what we need for change is not just a light, but a fire. And it's a fire that I believe has been brewing for decades now. I would say particularly within the last 20 years, uh, my, my um, point of beginning is September 11th. And so September 12th, when we woke up after that horrific moment, we in this country began to know what it was like to be truly powerless and truly fearful. We saw bravery exemplified and demonstrated, but we also began to commoditize fear in a whole new way. And that has created a pernicious side effect for how we negotiate our lives. Instead of making room to embrace the other, we have by and large, with, you know, with, notable, with notable exceptions, but by and large, we have looked at the other with great suspicion old ways of building borders and fences and walls have come back as a way of maintaining security, uh, preferred livelihood, a sense of prosperity and progress, and also our own personal desires, which we have now, without any sort of personal discernment, have just put out there as something that we should have not even really taking a look at its effect on the other, but just saying simply because I want it, I should have it. And so that grows into this entitlement that has also become part and parcel of how we, how we grow up in the civilization. So we've got all those kinds of things going on. Now we hit, uh, we, 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 we hit a, a pandemic which has, caused us all to put our normal, our normalcy to a, to a halt and grind it to a halt. We can't get what we want, when we want it, how we want it. And we're finding ourselves very much separated from one another. And I think that sense of powerlessness that has been added onto this river of growing fear and in many cases, the, 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 secondary no, uh, the secondary emotion of fear tends to be anger because I'm so frustrated, I'm so annoyed at all of this. And having all that just bubble up, I think all it needed was a fuse and enter this heinous tragedy with George Floyd um, that became the fuse and being able to see that in living color at a time when we thought that such things would not be conscionable, really began to expose what is going on in our country. It has uh, created a sense of awareness that we haven't seen in a while. And uh, 
that in conjunction with this with this health pandemic, I think has given people the time and the space to look at this from a different perspective, to look at the systematic, the systemic and the institutional, the personal and the social, the generational and cultural racism that has been part of our country since its colonization. And so to understand that even though we have had great strides in how we have um, seemingly progressed in our country, namely the election of Barack Obama as president for two terms, <laughs> winning Iowa, okay? These things that we, you know, that actually said that, oh my goodness, we must have overcome because I didn't even think that this was on the list of something that could be done. And here it is. But the truth is the undercurrent and not so undercurrent was still in, in motion and got a big push from that moment of what we thought was progress. So now we have a fire that Frederick Douglass talks about. And rather than to, you know, to, to kind of push it to, a, to its more militant ends, I, I'd like to propose that what we really do have and could appreciate a bit more is a spectrum of light. Everything from the candlelight of initial awareness, initial curiosity, that, that budding sense of knowledge, all the way to the conflict flagration that echoes the words of Angela Davis, I will no longer accept the things I cannot change. I will change the things I cannot accept. And so we have that fire that's out there, that, that conflagration of fire that's out there and everything in between. And amen for it. Amen for it. Just as long as there is a bit more heat now than there was before this all started is the opportunity, I believe, for, for change in some kind of way to begin to happen. And so that's a good thing. I think in terms of the change, we're going to have to be open to what is really needed here. The, the first I would say is education. There is a, there's a lot that people don't know about how insidious racism has weaved itself into the normalcy of our society. And so becoming more aware of that through, through education, through hearing stories, through um, you know, do, doing the research that one needs to see how these categoricals of racism have actually been demonstrated and fostered and, and sanctioned in our world today is a necessary. And if that starts from the beginning, amen. If there's already an intermediate and an advanced course in that, then, then you know, get in where you fit in. But there also needs to be a self-awareness that there has to be some facility and some instruction for how we go on the inside to see how we ourselves have been complicit in this. Because it is such a part of our normalcy that we participate in the, in, in the um, promotion of racial systems, uh, sometimes intentionally, many times not so much. And so we have to be able to do that. Now, going on the inside is not something that we're known for. 
And so I think having that instruction for that introspection is absolutely necessary so that we might be able to not judge, but become aware and to acknowledge that there are things within us that need to be looked at, that need to be changed, that need to be pruned, that need to be, um, and, and if they're good, if they're productive, then home. I think in going forward from here, uh, and, and uh, Sister Donna talked about that uh, pretty well in terms of uh, having some guidelines, open wide your heart can provide that, can provide the, the resources that one needs to, to look at this from a pastoral perspective, but also exercise it in conjunction with our spirituality, with our values of social justice, with our, our, our notions uh, and our understanding of how Jesus would have dealt with this situation, oh, how he dealt with this situation when he was walking amongst us and dealing with these same sort of things. Um, we have to answer a question in the midst of that, though, and to be able to stop for a moment as we look at all of the drama that is being um, played out right in front of us, pro and con. I think we have to ask ourselves a very basic question, and that is, how will we be with the other? Because that's going to determine just how far we are willing to go in order to eradicate with, with responsibility and uh, with, with, uh, with purpose this whole sickness of racism that is indeed a, sin, a pox amongst our, upon our house. So uh, answering that question though, I always say, let's, let's kind of take it apart. And so the we has got to be uh, expanded. We have been well-versed in, so, in our social and our cultural discourse on how to maintain and manage ourselves in a them versus us dichotomy, where the us have all the answers and the right way to go, and the them need to be put coerced many times to our side or manipulated to be discredited for the way that they think and do. And so in order for us to really understand the we-ness that, uh, that is appropriate for this kind of change, we have to ask ourselves how much room are we willing to give to allow the us to be part of the group. Understanding that unity is not uniformity, that we all don't do the same things because that's not how God created us. But to understand the richness of diversity and the cornucopia of personhood, talent, and dignity that we bring to that table of humanity is going to be an education for us in a very, very big way. And not everybody is ready to, ready to receive that education. And not everybody is ready to do what it takes to have that education move to an integration of heart and spirit. And so we have to be aware of that. And everyone from the top echelon to the bottom peon is going to fall within that category. No one is, no one is exempt because being part of that table means that we can't just stop at tolerance. Cory Booker said this really beautifully. He said that tolerance is simply when we make space for another to exist. 
And that's not what we're doing. We're talking about acceptance. We as Christians and particularly Catholic Christians, and I say that only because of what we preach, we're called to love. And that requires acceptance. That requires looking in the eyes of our brother and sister that is in front of us whom we have encountered, recognizing the, the image and likeness of God in which they have been created to respect and to safeguard their dignity because it is our responsibility. And then affirming and articulating that value that they are in our lives. That's what we are called to do. We don't have much education in how to do that. We speak it quite beautifully. We know how to say it, but do we know how to do it? And I think that's gonna really make all the difference. It's gonna require sacrifice. The agape love with which God fills us, empowers us, and commands us to share with others is agapeic. It's sacrificial. That means we have to give up something in order that we might receive the riches of another. And many of us are holding on too tight to our, to our own treasures in order to be able to do that. And so that's going to be another challenge that is before us. And also it's about normalizing a new normal to say what is can't no, can no longer be. And so now we have to be something new. So that's what I have to offer to this discussion, just particularly in light of, uh, of what, what my sister has brought forward. And I hope that that's helpful. I've heard a lot of the uh, the criticisms, what, the, what people say that the pastoral letter didn't do and doesn't do, and what the bishops should say and what the bishops should do. But, you know, that's, uh, that's one finger pointing somewhere and four fingers pointing back at us, three fingers pointing back at us, because we all have something to do. And we all have, and I really like what you said, Father Stephen, about, I mean, the growth. How far are we willing to grow to love others and to say, I'm going to go beyond tolerance. I'm going to go uh, to love and, and, and uh, the demands of love, you know, as hard as they may be. Uh, you know, we all have an opportunity to, to, to uh, be uh, uh, converted in a greater way, in a deeper way. Uh, there are those who, would, who, who uh, as we, you know, if you think about the discussions that have been going for the last few years around racism, there's this idea that people, certain people can't be racist. But I'm at the point now where I don't call anybody a racist. I just took, I speak about racist thoughts, racist ideas, racist policies. I mean, those are the things that hurt people. If you don't like me, well, you know, if my feelings are hurt, who cares? But if you are holding down whole groups of people, not allowing them to get educated, to get work, to feel safe in their, uh, in their own skins, as well as in their own uh, homes. Um, you know, uh, that's where, that's where it's, it's, it's most difficult. That's where the challenge really is. And we have a lot of opportunities to, to you know, to see, well, where, where are we the problem and not the, um, and not part of the solution? You know, where are we that way? Are we hardened in our ideas? Are our hearts hardened? to some people. And the wonderful thing about being human is that we can change. You know, you have you hear stories of people who were white supremacists, uh, Confederates, whatever, mm. and have had a coming, uh, have had an awareness. They're, they're waking up to the wrong ideas that they had and, and making changes, getting those ugly tattoos removed. And, you know, so, I mean, there's just a lot that we can do. And I think um, we're not limited. We're, we're I, not limited. Yeah, I love how you say that about um, not calling or not not labeling people at least constitutionally as racist. I think that that just automatically 
puts a, a blockade in front of any right, kind of progress we can do because it doesn't make anyone aware of where the error actually lies. Mm. Uh, also, I think we have to, it, it, you know, all for this, this, uh, this whole idea, this crazy, ridiculous idea of love that we are supposed to hold on to and supposed to promote um, requires us to do that in, in deed and in word. And so one of the things that I ask people or challenge people to do is to refrain from, now I understood it as reification, but I've, I've been told recently that that's probably not the word that I want to use now. So I'm just going to say categorizing. <laughs> okay. mm -hmm. That's when somebody is reduced to a particular behavior that they, mm -hmm. that they have or a particular situation that they find themselves in. And we don't necessarily see the personhood of them because mm -hmm. what we concentrate on is the adjective and not the noun. Right. And so person first language has been the great solution that I, that I prescribe for that. So as opposed to saying a racist, for, for example, mm -hmm. I'd say a person who has, uh, who, who, has um, who has mentioned a racist thought or who has mm -hmm. uh, promoted a racist idea or who um, patronizes a racist institution, that sort, exactly. of, that sort of thing, so that we can at least begin to identify where the problem actually lies. Number one, if we're going to kind of do this this whole movement towards change and make it stick, but but more to the point, it does begin to make room for us to recognize the personhood in that and and the other, uh, and so we don't we don't dismiss them, we don't uh, discredit them, we don't marginalize them, and we don't reduce them. And I say, if you want an even deeper challenge, because we find we who are Christian are uh, called to be in kinship with one another, then it's not a person, it's a brother or a sister. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so call them in kind. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank so, you. I know we have, we have, uh, uh, Valerie and we have uh, Roger and Lene. I don't know if you all want to have questions or want to get into this this conversation. Thank you, Valerie. I see you. Uh, yes. I just wanted to add that, you know, I, I often because I teach teenagers and Father Bell, I have to tell you, I busted Halo. That's where I recognized you from. So, but I teach teenagers and I often say to them several times, I said, if we really knew what baptism meant, how many of you think you would have gone through with it? Amen. You know, like picking up that mission of Jesus, like the responsibilities are, are so intense. And that call to love, okay, regardless, like telling a 15-year-old, I don't care whether you like them or not, you have to love them. That means you have to want the best for them. You have to recognize the Jesus in them. You know, and when I think about, when I, when I talk about caring for one another, and, and I start off with prejudice, which means you prejudge. By human nature, we all prejudge. Mm -hmm. It's when you prejudge and then you don't want to hear anything that you move to the, the ism side, okay? But we recognize the humanness in all of us, you know, and that, that prejudging. And how much, like you said, in sacrifice, how much are you willing to risk because when you find out, oh, that person isn't bad, they're not bad at all. 
but you already have something in your mind and everybody knows you that one way. How much you, are you willing to risk to stand on that truth? You know, and that, that's, that's all that baptism in Jesus work. So my, my question is, that you can think back when I was a baby and baptized, if I knew what I was being called into this mission, oh my goodness, we might have had to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. That's my, all I have to add. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, just to uh, just think about that, you know, how much are we willing to risk in the systems that we're a part of? Mm -hmm. How much are we willing to risk when we have had privilege within economic systems, when we've had privilege within educational systems, when we have had privilege in ecclesiastical systems? How much are we willing to risk to walk that baptismal road? How much? Now I see uh, Lene. Yes, was there something that you wanted to say? I see. I see. Yeah, I appreciate the the the, the wonderful thoughts that uh, Donna, Sister Donna, and Father Stephen and Valerie offered, and yourself as well. I think this is a time particularly for us to. And I appreciated the fact that you took away the word of the ism, the racism, because I think when you, particularly when you speak about people who have uh, preconceived ideas about a particular culture, it is important to, to call to the attention, particularly if they are of the faith. It's not in alignment with what God, the mission of the church. It's not in alignment. When we have thoughts other than love, tolerance, compassion, kindness. We are not in alignment with what our universal church, our Catholic church, what the, the mission of Jesus is. So I so appreciate it because I, with your comments, I too am a teacher and it's very easy for a child to have these little thoughts about mm -mm, people weren't born like this. They are a product of their, of their experience. They are a product of how they were raised. But I do believe firmly in my heart that if Jesus could sit down with the Samaritan woman and let her know she had value, we can mm -hmm. look at our brothers and sisters who look at us sometimes and don't see us, who look at us sometimes and don't acknowledge us, who look at us sometimes and don't respect us and show them a different way, offer them a new experience. So I so appreciate the positive trend that we have because it's not about the us, them, the negativity. It's all about the reconciliation. What can we do? to sit at table with each other? How can we educate the, our brothers and sisters that really don't know? What do we do? Well, we educate and we do it in a kind and loving and Christ-centered manner. So I thank you all. I just wanted to say that because it, it, it's all about you know, reconciliation, about the, the mission of the church. Yes. Thank you, Lene. And Roger, I see you. <laughs> This has been such a rich gathering, um, enriching and fulfilling. And I so appreciate what our sister Donna Grimes and Father Stephen Bell have brought to the fore for us to think about and, and, and to consider. From, from Sister Donna, I, I think and meditate and been mulling over our bishops and how you presented that document and the, the image of the shepherd caught me in, in, in your sharing and how the shepherd cares for the sheep and, 
and wanting and needing for our bishops to care about us. Jesus is the good shepherd and then these are the under shepherds. And, and I've been for so long wanting the shepherds to say that we matter and, we, and they care and that we are precious. And I appreciated that you also put into context that all of the onus should not be placed at the bishops, but for each and every one of the body of Christ, of, of the members of the church, and that we all have a responsibility to, to, to care for one another. And for Father Stephen to, to talk about going beyond uh, uh, tolerance and move towards acceptance. And what I couldn't help but contemplate was to go to the scripture and, and, and to think about the, the, the 10th chapter of Luke. You know, when, when this scholar, I had to go back and the scholar says, what, what can I do, Jesus, to inherit the kingdom? I wanna get in, what, what must I do? And he says, ah, well, you know, what, you know, what is it you think? Well, what, is the, what does the law say? He said, well, you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, your soul, your mind. Got to do all of that. And you got to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, yeah, yeah, you have spoken rightly. And then it says, well, well, what does that mean? He says, well, what are you talking about? Well, how do I love my neighbor as yourself? And Jesus goes, let me tell you something. And he breaks open that parable. You know, that you, you get in the, you know, the paraphrase, this, this, my, you have, my edition hasn't come out yet, but <laughs> when he breaks it down and he talks about that parable of the good Samaritan. And, and we talked about, Father Steve, you talked about the othering, you know, and that's what that parable gets to, how we have made people the other. And it, for a moment, I didn't know if I would even be able to talk today because I would, my own, I'm so hurt and I'm tired of the othering. And it's hard enough when the world others you, but when your church others you too, that pain, the scarring of that has been so, oh, I, can't, I don't, but hearing your words has given me hope and re-encouraged me and faith that if our church seizes this moment, that we can move beyond tolerance to acceptance, and I'm just so encouraged that this is the moment. This is the, mo the moment to be seized for this to happen. And your words today have just encouraged me, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. Now, for sure, as I was thinking about that, thank you so much, Roger. Uh, I got a, a, a wonderful text from, uh, from Valerie today. She said, you have got to listen to the opening to Bishop Sykes. You've got to. And what did you say? You said, he really set the table and he did indeed. So if you all out there on this webinar, if you haven't listened to it already, you know, there are some advantages to this online for mm -hmm. format. Go back and listen to his words at the opening, but not only to his words, he also sang, you know, He's saying, we shall overcome. And, for, and here we are at NPM, so you know we've got to be talking about music. And yet, when we think about not othering people, how can we learn to sing each other's songs? Now, you can take that in many different ways, but how can we learn to sing 
each other's songs. Sometimes we may sing it with each other. Sometimes we may sing it in other places, but to sing each other's songs. But you've got to hear him sing it. We shall overcome. You know, I, I fell off the sofa. <laughs> I mean, it really brought me to tears. When he calls on me, I will answer him. I will deliver him and give him glory. I will grant him length of days. For more information about the resources mentioned in this episode and for additional episodes in Ministry Monday's Celebrating Black Voices series, check out the show notes of this episode at ministrymonday.org. The recording of When He Calls on Me was produced by GIA Publications and written by M. Roger Holland II. And today's show music was produced by Aaron Chows. Today's episode of Ministry Monday was produced by me, Amanda Bruce. That's it for today. With the Spirit's gifts empowering us for the work of ministry, thanks for listening. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday. Yeah.